This is Two Guys in a River. I'm Steve Mathewson. And I'm Dave Getz. We're two lifelong friends who love fly fishing for trout. Our podcast is all about helping you catch more fish and deepening your love of the time you spend on the river. We are Two Guys in a River. For the love of fly fishing. Last fall, Dave and I spent a couple days on the Gardner River in Yellowstone National Park. On that last day, we saw a grizzly track. We saw steam rise from a thermal area a couple miles to the south. We saw the sun try to burn through the thick cloud cover. We saw trout after trout as we landed and released them. But there's one thing we didn't see that day. Another human being on the water. Yep. One of the reasons we fly fish is because we love wild places. Today we're going to talk about how the wild places have shaped us. Uh, Dave, as you think about wild places, what what are wild places, like some of the rivers that we fish, what, what do they do for you? Before I begin, I should, or even answer that question, I should mention the emotion I had when we ran across that grizzly track <laughs> yeah. in the trail. Yeah. Uh, I took a pic of it, a picture of it. It was fresh, like it had to be in the last 12 hours maybe. Mm -hmm. And there, so the emotion is fear, but there's also a, another emotion, which is this incredible sense of wonder at being in a place yeah. where there is a grizzly bear. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so for me, wild evokes almost a sense of hope mm -hmm. that there's more wild out there and that there are still places to go and rivers to fish. More river upstream. That's why I think of yeah. our mm -hmm. best places fishing. We're always thinking about we want to be at a place where we can go to that next run without having to bump into another fly fisher. Yeah, that's true. Nothing to block our view or the mm -hmm. next run yep. or whatever we want to do. So wild, I think, evokes in me. And I was, try I was trying to think about why it evokes hope in me. Hmm. I really can't put a finger on yeah. it. But... I love this idea of being in a place where I can fish without seeing other human beings and being in an environment where there's, I don't know, there's, it's kind of endless. Yeah. Yep. And, and not been run over by, by, you know, by the hoi polloi, by yeah, the masses. That's right. So that's true. What I about think, you? Well, I think for me, wild. Uh, re-energizes and refreshes me. I guess you could say it makes me feel alive, which really sounds kind of stupid when you think about it. I mean, how, how can I not feel alive when I really am alive? But, but there is something that happens in my spirit. I, I think there's this sense of wonder and satisfaction and fulfillment. And, and then, too, when I leave the river, it's like you say, if, if we fish in places that are truly wild places, you know that there's more left. There, there's another day where you could go back and and explore the river further. Maybe that's some of the mystique that goes with yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. Is that, that you know you haven't fully uh, experienced, explored, uh, you know everything that there is to to experience in those moments. So, what are some of your favorite wild places? Oh wow, I I do think Yellowstone National Park. Uh, you know on the uh, you know, in the Yellowstone River near Tower Fall, that's one of them. Um, you know, I, I certainly like, I've, I've always, you know, been intrigued with the, the gardener, and we got to really fish that uh, this year. I, I think the Yellowstone River, even in Paradise Valley, and, 
And a lot of times it's some of those tributaries, those creeks that, that nobody fishes. They're, they're so busy on the big river, but you get in those drainages and, you know, we fish several of them. We've gone up a little bit into Mill Creek and Paradise Valley. We've gone to Taylor's Fork, you know, over uh, in, you know, south of uh, the Gallatin in that area. It's uh, it's pretty stunning country. That reminds me of a story. My brother had a boondoggle breast cancer research conference uh, in Big Sky, Montana. And it was, I think it was 2010 maybe, and we were standing at the Fins and Feathers fly shop at Four Corners. We saw this big line of black SUVs going south towards Big Sky. And it was President Obama. Wow. And um, so he was at Big Sky at the same time. Mm. And crazy story. So Matt is talking to a lot of his doctor friends who were at the conference. They all, most of them ended up on the Gallatin, right? They're going to fish the Gallatin. Mm -hmm. Maybe they have a guide, maybe they don't. Yeah. One of them said, hey, why don't you try Taylor Fork? And and so that is a good example. You talk about these smaller tributaries, Taylor's Fork, or it's actually Taylor Fork, I think. Taylor Fork, right. Yeah, Taylor yeah. Fork mm -hmm. flows into, yeah. the, into, the, into the Gallatin. Mm -hmm. And so that afternoon, I, we went up there and had just a terrific day on hoppers. Now, you and I went back four or five years later, and the stream was really low because of... Uh, runoff was yeah. was really uh, low that year, but that identifying and finding that stream was one of the great gifts of that trip. And you and I have been back mm. there, but of course we realized later that it had the highest per capita of grizzlies in the yeah. North America, which was you know a problem. I think one of your friends actually encountered a grizzly yeah. in there. Oh yeah, that's right. So got, um, got mauled. Yep. So there is something about being in a wild place, yeah. and often these small tributaries are where you actually find oh, yeah. some really beautiful country. Hey, how about that stream we used to fish years ago, early 80s, up near the Bob Marshall Wilderness Oh, yeah, goat. that was Elk Creek. Yeah, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Now, that yeah. was a freestone creek near that flowed yep. out of the Bob mm -hmm. Marshall Wilderness. Yep. And I remember it flows out of the Bob Marshall, and then it flows into some BLM land, Bureau of Land mm -hmm. Management land, because that's where we used to camp up there. You remember yeah. that? Did you ever camp up there? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I did. Yeah, 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 mm -hmm. yeah. In fact, you're probably the one who showed me where to camp. But I took my brother Matt there uh, years later, and um, and the river had really changed. But yeah. um, it was it evoked this idea back that you you could go and fish this thing mm -hmm. forever until you until it was too small to fish. And there was something really, really intriguing about and mysterious, yeah. almost and wonderful and magical about being able mm -hmm. to fish a stream like that you got native fish um, as well as some wild fish in there but mm -hmm. it's just it was it, it to me it, it, it's the paragon of of, yeah. uh, of wild elk creek really in a sense is yep. the model for wild yep you know there's something else dave that I, i've thought a little bit about and that's how some of these wild places draw me into the, the history that surrounds them and that does involve people but I always think of fishing the East Gallatin River uh, north of, of Bozeman. I, I used to live uh, really probably on the first hill in, in that North Valley, and I could overlook the valley, and, and I could see the East Gallatin. It was probably, uh, I don't know, half, three-quarters of a mile from, you know, from where I, I lived, and I could look down and see that. And then I'd go down there and fly fish, and I'd always think about how how uh, William Clark and Sacagawea uh, walked right through there somewhere, not too far from the East Gallatin, maybe just a little bit 
uh, south of it as they were coming from the Three Forks on their way back. Uh, at the Three Forks, uh, Lewis and Clark uh, split up. Uh, Meriwether Lewis went back the way that he that they came up through, uh, you know, through what now is Great Falls, Montana, and then followed the the uh, Missouri. But uh, Clark and Sacagawea w went the, the the lower route. They wanted to kind of look at the Yellowstone River, and then they eventually met up, which is just amazing to me. I yeah, mean, without that is amazing. cell phones or, or anything. I guess you just show up and you wait a week. Yep. <laughs> but anyway, I always think about how, you know what, they, they walked right not too far from where I'm fishing. And then, and then I always think about uh, Ivan Doig, the great Western writer. Uh, his uncle Jim was uh, killed in a horse accident. was thrown from his horse uh, not too far from uh, the East Gallatin where I fly fish. I always think about that. Or, or you remember when we fished the one time? What was time? the book that Doig wrote? Oh, Yeah. Uh, his uh, his book was uh, um, Big House of Sky, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, this this House of Sky. This House yeah. of Sky, yeah. Yeah, great great book. But I, I remember too. Do you remember when we fished between Hebgen and Quake Lake? Oh yeah, yeah. You cut yeah, that on the huge Madison. rainbow. Oh yeah. I also that, left my rod on the top of the uh, on the truck in near there. Remember that? That's right. And and we lost it. And uh, how convenient! You had to buy a new. Yeah, orbis, I felt just huh? horrible. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> But I remember fishing there, and right across the road is Cabin Creek Campground. And if if you drive in there, you can see the uh, you can see the earthquake in 1959. How the the ground at one place just dropped. I mean, it was you know there, there's this what this scarp, and it's like 12 feet, you know, to the to the top to the bottom. Where all of a sudden, it, just think that if, if you're in a campsite and you know, half of your campsite just drops 12 feet, or maybe you drop the 12 feet and the other is... Did people die in that earthquake? Yeah, oh yeah, there were like 28, 29 that, that died. And I wow. always think about that. In fact, there was a family from Idaho, not too far from where my in-laws lived. Uh, and I remember the lady, Irene Bennett, actually wrote a, a book uh, about uh, about that night, and about her experience. She lost her her husband and, and I think four of their... Uh, five kids. That's uh, horrible. Yeah, yeah there's a real oh, tragedy. Goodness. Um, but I, I think about that. Or, or even last summer when I was on the uh, uh, up in northern Michigan near Grayling fishing the Osable, and got a chance to uh, float one of those Osable River drift boats. And it's really fascinating because uh, lumber companies used to use that. It, it was a flat-bottomed craft. And they used to use that to move tools and supplies to their logging camps. I mean, all the way back into the 1870s. And uh, loggers then would use these to maneuver between the logs when they floated the logs down the rivers. And, you know, they'd get log jams. And so you'd get in there with these, these really long, almost look like canoe-type uh, boats. And, and then in the early 1880s, somebody got the idea to modify the design to use it for fishing. That's so, brilliant. Yeah, isn't it? You know, even in 1880, somebody That's was brilliant. Somebody was thinking correctly, weren't they? They were. <laughs> it's also but, a good reminder that people have been fly fishing and fishing for a oh really man, long time. I know they really have. So I don't know. There, there is something about some of those wild. Uh, uh, places that that even draw me into the history, and I, I mean, I could tell stories about places where you and I have fished, where we know that okay, the mountain men were caught up on this bluff above the Madison, and yep. place on the Gallat 
the, the East Gallatin where, okay, there's a bridge where a, a serial killer from uh, Manhattan, Montana, back in the, in the 70s, uh, shot uh, one person off that bridge, and he killed uh, a handful of others. And, wow. You know, it, it, so it, it's both the tragedy and the triumph. There, there is something about being in those rivers that uh, pulls you into that history. I think wild also evokes the possibility of wonder in my life where so much of my life, everything is so buttoned down and organized and cleaned up and manicured. I, I wrote a book with Harper Collins in 2006 called Death by Suburb. Yeah, great book. And it was great about book. my journey basically growing up in more rural communities in North Dakota and my transition into the suburbs of Chicago. And it was actually a spirituality book. It was, uh, the thesis of the book was that the environment of the suburb, which is so buttoned down and manicured and perfect, really shapes your soul and shapes how you think about your life uniquely. And so one of our, one of my journeys in moving here after growing up where I did is, is, is staying in touch with the wild because that yeah. is what evokes wonder in my life. One of our great clients in recent years with my business has been the Morton Arboretum in the Chicagoland area. They're one of the top 10 arboretums uh, in the world, actually, and they do a lot of science there. Just a terrific place. They have about 1,700 acres, but it's still really manicured. And, and why I love the Morton Arboretum and think it's just a terrific place, it's not wild. Right. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, it's still controlled. They control the seeding of the grass. You know, the trees are all protected, which is great. And it's really great if you live in the suburbs. It's a place to go to find really natural grasslands mm -hmm. and stuff. But it's not wild. Yeah. You understand yep. what I mean? It's not well, wild. I do. It's, it's kind of the same way I feel about golf courses. They're, they're beautiful. And, uh, you know, there is something about the surroundings. But you also say, but this isn't, uh, this isn't wild. No, it, it's not. Except when I'm golfing. Then, yeah. That's then wild. That swing, wild. that out. is wild. Ooh, another <laughs> slice. Four. <laughs> oh, man. You know, I, I think related to that, wild, the wild places and fishing these, these big rivers of the West or, or some of the streams that we fished in the Driftless or some of the streams I remember back in, in Pennsylvania, you know, growing up. There's something about that that puts me in touch with the land in a similar way to what ranchers experience. Now, I'm, I'm not a rancher, but I, I, I spent uh, you know, almost a year working on a cattle ranch and uh, you know, helped move cattle, did some of the, a lot of irrigating. When did you do that? Some of the fall plowing. Um, it would have been in uh, 1986. Was that after uh, graduate school? Right, uh-huh. Yep, I worked for Nelson Herford Ranch and... Uh, and they actually had some property up, uh, uh, oh, what's what was called uh, Six Mile, which is uh, uh, the, the first, they, they sold the property, the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. It was their first huh. purchase. And I used to, to fence up there in, in the spring. And, and so I, I got enough of, of that experience to realize, wow, what, what a lot of ranchers really uh what they love about it is that they're they're doing something with the land. They're they're getting involved with the land. And I know that that may may seem kind of uh, uh, odd, but but there is something there to is that. It's, absolutely, that's yeah. True. You, you really, I mean, communing with nature. That sounds rather cliche-ish, but 
that there really is a, an opportunity to get involved with the land more than just driving through. And, or but, paying a fee to, to see yeah, something. Yeah, right. right. But actually getting out and, and having something to do, it just, it just draws you into that wilderness area so that you're, I guess you're experiencing it at a, at a higher sensory level, if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, absolutely. A couple of years yeah. ago, my dad and I, I took two weeks off uh, of my work and I, I called it a sabbatical. Now I still work, but I, I didn't, I wasn't in Chicago. I spent it in North Dakota with my dad and we hunted a ton. And there are still some very, very rural places in North Dakota. And there's this probably expanse of about 20,000 acres that we hunt and have access to hunting mm -hmm. in, in North Central um, uh, North Dakota. And we were out hunting one day and we saw what we thought was a wolf. And wow. I looked at my dad and we looked at each other and thought, now, was that a coyote? And dad goes, N I don't, that was a really, really big coyote if, if it was. And we know that there are wolves in North Dakota, but they're not like as many as there are in like West Yellowstone, yeah. or not West Yellowstone, mm -hmm. but the Lamar Valley, the Yellowstone right. National Park mm -hmm. or anything. So we, we tried to follow it and we, it went down this little ridge and I went, I walked all the way around to try to find it. We never saw it again. But again, wild gives you that possibility of seeing something like that. Or like when we were fishing 16 mile um, a couple years ago in that remote valley. Mm -hmm. And I had that uh, mink that came up right beside me and snatched oh, that yeah. baby mm -hmm. duck out of the nest. Yeah. And then kind of looked mm -hmm. at me like, you're not going to touch me because I'm not dropping this baby duck. But here, here I am face to face with this mink. And I've talked about it in some other podcasts. But that's the possibility of wild, right? It's true. Experiencing that. Yeah. That it, is it, a possibility of wild. It puts you in touch with, with danger and, and some of the harsh realities of, of life, doesn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, it, it's not uh, fly fishing and, and visiting those wild places. It's not an extreme uh, sport by any means, but uh, if, if you're outdoors for any amount of time in wild places, you, you come in touch with the danger and and with some of the very harsh realities of life. That, that's really true. I think wild also connects me to the fish I'm catching and some, again, all this seems so mystical, <laughs> but yeah, I don't know how to explain yeah. it, right? There's some connection to, and there's something so primitive about catching a big fish in mm -hmm. its wild habitat and then releasing it back to the wild. I'm taking, but I'm also giving mm -hmm. back. Yeah. And I think fly fishing exposes you to that. And that's such one of the great gifts of fly fishing. Yeah, that's true. You know, we used to, I used to eat a lot more trout. I, I haven't really kept any for, for years and, and, and I would, but, but I, I think it kind of flows out of that, doesn't it? Kind of that hunter gatherer instinct and part of life and, and in a way we get to relive that a bit when we you know the last fish. time i think i actually caught, kept a trout do you remember when i visited your place yeah uh-huh it must have been 15 20 years ago in montana yeah, uh -huh. was it in the 90s no i think it was it was 2004 or 5 in the spring you know, I know that because I came across those pictures the other day of you holding uh, three fish you caught. And I thought, you know, I could use these to blackmail you if I need to. <laughs> I'll put these on our website. Here's Dave the Fish Slayer. Yeah, exactly. But no, we, we kept the, you kept those and we, yeah, we had yeah, a good yeah, yeah. meal out of them. Yeah, yeah. And, and I don't think I've kept another one since. And I had caught and released 
all my life before that, but I, you know, for some reason I can't, yeah. I don't even mm-hmm. remember why, but, um, but I do think there is something really emotionally powerful about catching something and then yeah, and not really eating is. it, but actually giving it back and releasing yeah. it back to the wild. It's true. So what about you? Anything else? Yeah. I, I think at the end of the day for me that, that all of this flows into a certain, uh, stream, if you want to say it that way, and that is that, that wild places and, and the wild rivers I fish really point me to the Creator, and it makes me marvel at His power and wisdom. And I should say that that sense of wonder and awe that I've talked about really creates in me what C.S. Lewis, the the old Oxford Don, the philosopher, what he called the inconsolable longing, uh, the scent of a flower I've never smelled, the echo of a tune I've never heard. Uh, news from a distant country I've, I've never visited. So it all really takes me back to, uh, uh, to the, the Creator and, and His majesty. That's How about re- you? That's really interesting because I think back to the whole suburban life, you're mm-hmm. so busy, there's all these activities, there's yeah. not a lot of wonder in your life. Mm-hmm. Um, I think sometimes it suppresses that inconsolable longing. And... and uh, I just thought about this as we're talking yeah, about it, yeah. right? So you don't actually feel it. Right. But when you're out there in the wild and you start to, you know, the wind picks up and all of a sudden the temp goes from mm-hmm. 95 degrees to 55 degrees yeah. or 60 mm-hmm. degrees like it did for us the other day. Yep. And mm-hmm. there, you know, all these different things, you start to feel something and experience something mm-hmm. that is different in kind from your life yeah. in the suburbs. And sometimes what, what comes up in that is this sense of longing for mm-hmm. For is it more of that or longing for? I can't yeah. even put my finger on. It sounds goofy it is to interesting. talk about. It. No, but you know, as as one whose uh, profession is about preaching, teaching the Bible, I've, I've noticed the Bible talks about seeing the glory of God or the majesty of God both in both in the city and in what human beings create as uh, you know, as those created by their Creator. But then it's also in in the uh, in, in, in nature and creation itself. Yeah. So you have both of those, and yeah, we're certainly not denying that that you that you can experience some um, a sense of wonder or awe when you're you know when you're living in the, the city or the suburbs. I mean, we, we see that, but but wow, I think for both of us, that there is something about those wild places, and that's one of the things that draws the fly fish. It really is. I think the last thing I would say about this is that wild to me means something that is preserved, quote, the way it was supposed to be, unquote. Yeah. You know, like mm-hmm. like the original creation. It it's it's like it was meant to be. Mm-hmm. And you know, you talked earlier about Sacagawea and Clark as they moved through the Gallatin Valley. Mm-hmm. I always wondered what was it like to see North Dakota or South Dakota, or Montana, or Colorado, or all these places I've lived, to see it for the first time. Right, and without any highways, without without any amenities. I thought about that just a couple weeks ago. My uh, father-in-law, 90 years old, passed away uh, day after Christmas in uh, 2016, and so uh, we went back to Idaho. He and my mother-in-law had lived northwest of Boise, uh, for a long time, for several decades, and then, then about a month and a half before he died, they moved up to Kamei, Idaho, where I have a brother-in-law uh, there and, and his wife. And uh, boy, that that's Lewis and Clark country. And we, you know, we drove a good stretch along the Clearwater to get there. 
Clearwater River and you see the ice chunks. And I thought, man, that this is where Lewis and Clark, especially on the way back from the West Coast, they had to wait. They had to camp in Kamei for, it was about a month waiting for, uh, uh, you know, the snow to, to melt in the, the mountains to the east so they could back go back over what's now Lolo Pass to Missoula. And so were they waiting just for the river to blow up? to not be blown out and to, to get to its lowest point? You know, that may have been part of it, but they actually said in their journals that, that they were thrilled to see the river rise because they knew that meant snow was melting in the high country. Huh. But, but I thought of that as I, as I drove along that river, and, and again, I thought, man, if I could have brought my fly rod my waders to get out there even in december but yeah a funeral is really not the time no, to be fly fishing no, steve <laughs> it, it really isn't you just get bad press that's all exact, the way around that's when you exactly do that. right hey hon hey uh, take care of the arrangements i'll be back yes. in about five hours <laughs> yeah, that, that's right i know yeah and in december uh, yeah. like that boy if i fall in I, yeah. yeah we'll be doing another funeral that's right exactly. no kidding so <laughs> Well, uh, that's, a, that's a great topic, isn't it? Yeah, and, sure uh, is. I could go on all day uh, on this one. I so. know. Yep, we, we love wild Wild places, is good. And it is. Wild is good. Well, it's time for great stuff from our listeners. And here's something to lighten the mood. Uh, a while back, we did a piece on fly fishing proverbs for the ages. And a few listeners submitted some of their favorites, and we love them all. But here's one from a reader or a listener named Jim, and this is what he wrote. Here's the proverb. Even a fish wouldn't get in trouble if it kept its mouth shut. <laughs> that is hilarious. Been there, done that. Man, <laughs> that's like a proverb for my marriage. Boy, that's right. Oh, that's even a, awesome. Even a fish. Or even raising kids. Holy oh, cow. it's true. Even a fish wouldn't get in trouble if it kept its mouth shut. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Insert husband, is, dad, you know, yeah, whatever you exactly. want there. Yeah. Brother-in-law. That's true. <laughs> yes. Well, hey, that's going to do it for today. How have the wild places where you fly fish shaped you? How have they shaped you? Go to twoguysintheriver.com and comment on this podcast link. What have the wild places done for you when you fly fish them? You can find Two Guys in a River pretty much everywhere. Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, Stitcher. And of course, you can visit our website, twoguysinarever.com. Well, thanks again for listening. I'm Steve Mathewson. And I'm Dave Getz. Until next time, we are Two Guys on a River. For the love of fly fishing. <laughs>